Good morning. How are you? How's your practice? Okay. Um, if anybody uh, does not have a daily spiritual practice, would you see me immediately after class? <laughs> we will have a talk. Uh, so, so essential. Okay. So, on the 24th, Holly and I are going to be teaching. Hello to the pajama people, and if you're in another time zone, the wine and cheese people. No, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I want to begin today by offering you some words from Albert Einstein. I've used them before, but it's been a long time ago. Because I think they frame perfectly the issue and the territory that I'm attempting to pioneer through. Um, it's a different slant, a different emphasis this time around. Einstein said, a human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience our thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of spiritual delusion of our consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. When I read that, I thought of something that Shakespeare has in his play, Twelfth Night. He says, there are no prisons more confining than those we do not know we are in. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. It's a great quote. So what I have been talking about the last two weeks is that there's not another world. This is it. And that we are not separated from each other, except, of course, in the delusion of our egos. Our egos think we're separate, but in fact, we are not. Now, what is amazing by this quote from Einstein is that he died in 1955. Einstein intuited the things that we are learning from the various scientific disciplines today. He didn't know, but he intuited. And he wrote it out in a formula, in more than one formula. He even went to see Edward Hubble to convince him that the universe was expanding. He knew this up here, but we didn't have the evidence that we have now from the Hubble telescope. So Einstein's virtually prophetic proposal to anybody who would listen is that we've got to free ourselves from the prisons that hold us by widening our circle of compassion. And that's what I'm calling this talk today, widening our circle of compassion. And you'll find out more about why in, in a minute. When I think about circles and I, I think about compassion, and um, I think almost automatically about Edward Markham's um, epigram entitled Outwitted. You know what? He drew a circle to shut me out. Heretic, rebel, 
a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. So I'm going to be using the teachings of Jesus with the hope and the goal that they challenge us, that they equip us, and that they encourage us. Those three things uh, in this process of widening the circle of compassion. And uh, I'll be using the document. I think there are a few of them that are left on the table that I passed out last week called Reclaiming Jesus, a Confession of Faith in the Time of Crisis. I hope that you have taken time to read that. Um, if you did not get one and if you have not re read it, you might even make that in a growing way part of what you read in your, in your opening up your headspace in your practice. I will put a link to it in the resources section of the Ordinary Life website so that you can download it and, and have a copy of it for, for yourself. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful document, and it's a very, very challenging one. Um, I encourage you to do that. So what's your faith? What, what is your faith? Now, my belief is that by embracing the truth that there's nothing to hold on to and no one to do the holding, that that's what opens us up to the possibility of a genuine faith and trust. It's this faith and trust that opens us up to seeing and participating in life in a way that involves us in a much more beautiful and compassionate love story than the one our culture wants us to embrace. Now, I am not unmindful that asking people, especially people steeped in uh, and committed to a particular doctrinal religious position, that to believe these things is easy. Because if you grew up in a religious tradition, this was what you were taught. You were taught that there is another world. And, and by believing the right things, you could get to it. Um, and you're taught that, there, that we are separate from each other. And that the primary interest of God, or Jesus, is saving your individual soul. We've all been taught that. We've all been steeped in that. It's just not a useful way to think about the sacred. But I'm not unmindful that asking people to give that up is a, a, a challenge. I think that being certain about religious doctrine is what removes the need for faith. It takes people away from the importance of practice. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we are living in perilous and polarizing times in our governmental institutions, as well as almost in all of our religious organizations. I have watched, as you have, Politics absolutely undermined the theology of evangelical Christianity in a way that no one could have predicted a dozen years ago. I knew that fundamentalism was on the rise, but I, I had no idea 
that we would come to see some of what we're seeing today. To quote from the document Reclaiming Jesus, quote, the church's role is to change the world through the life and love of Jesus. The government's role is to serve the common good by protecting justice and peace. When either of these functions is undermined, it's time for the church to function as a conscience for the state and for itself, I would add. And, and what you see going on in government today is mirrored to some extent in the, in the politics of the church. Many churches have been split asunder because of the takeover by a fundamentalist agenda at the denominational level. And you don't have to go any further than what's going on in the United Methodist Church to see this. This is the topic in the sacristy this morning when we gathered before the worship service about what is happening to the Methodist Church. The conflict claims to be over the issue of full inclusion of people who identify as other than heterosexual, but the real issue is power and control that seeks to take the church backwards decades. I, I overheard a man who is proposing, who is opposed to changing the rules in the Methodist Church about full inclusion say, I cannot go against 2,000 years of Christian teaching. And my two brief responses of that are first, there was no stance 2,000 years ago. Um, this is you know we're anywhere near that old and, and and second if the church could stand change its stand on slavery why can't we change our stance on this so I'm saying we're in a crisis as a as a country and as a church. And I put the words church in quotation marks because there are so many ways to measure the health and well-being of what we think of when we use the word church. You know, in some parts of the world, uh, Pentecostal Christianity is absolutely flourishing, just growing by leaps and bounds. Um, in the United States, the number of adults who regard themselves as Christian has fallen 12 percentage points in the last 10 years. So the religious personalities who get all the attention in the media have so entangled faith with bigotry, sexism, homophobia, and other things that for many, Christianity, Christianity is associated less with the love Jesus said people would know us by than it is associated with hate in the minds of people. That makes sense what I'm saying? I, I, I had a friend, I've used this line here before, who was expelled from a church as a senior minister because he would not um, condemn homosexuals. And he told me in the process of that, he said, you know, nobody can hate like a Christian. There's something clearly not right about that picture. I'm concerned, as I believe many of you are, about the state of our world. Um, it seems to be one where hate congeals and then gathers more hate, where fear congeals and gathers more feel, where Love does not automatically create new and more love. 
Love and self-knowledge is written off as being soft and ineffective. And this has led all of this to what, to what one sociologist calls circles of certainty, which no, has no basis whatsoever for their absolute certainty than the desire for the enforcement of their own private ego. And, and this is one way to explain why so many around the world are willing to move against their own democratic ideals and best interest in favor of strong men or bullies who can enforce by some kind of power these certainties. I want to quote to you from a recent piece that Richard Rohr wrote. Quote, how can Donald Trump, King John Young, Rodrigo Duriti, I'm going to pronounce these correctly, he's the president of the Philippines, Vladimir Putin, Gerard Bolsonaro, who's president of Brazil, Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela, the, the, the head of China, all emerge at this particular period of history. After several centuries of what we thought was a gracious spread of democracy, how could it happen that the swing to the right has, has, has occurred? So I'm saying that awareness and commitment to psychological growth is essential. Um, Jim Wallace, who is the animator behind the piece that uh, I handed out last week called Reclaiming Jesus, has a line that I have used a few times in here that I wish I had thought of, but I didn't. Just hate to give people credit for the really good stuff, you know? <laughs> What Jim Wallace says is what we need in going forward is not to go right or left, but to go deep. And what that deep means is deep within ourselves, deeper within our own understanding and relationship to God or sacred mystery or whatever word you want to use, deeper in our relationships with each other and with others that we call the enemy or the neighbor, uh, many uh, deeper into the lives of those people, many of whom are so vulnerable and have no way to defend or take care of themselves in this world. And the key word here is compassion. Einstein is right. Compassion for ourselves because we can't give something we don't have and, and we have to work at increasing <clears throat> that compassion. So... It is in this context that I want to introduce you to the Charter for Compassion. Now, before I do that, I want to, I want to give you a little background. I first <clears throat> heard of Karen Armstrong through two of her books. She has a long bibliography. Um, the, the first book that I read of Karen Armstrong's is a book called The Battle for God. And the next book I read of hers is a book called The History of God. Now, I read these in the late 90s. And uh, I mentioned them as I was reading them a lot in here. Some of you will remember that. Uh, <clears throat> pardon my voice. If you wanted to do something to increase your religious literacy, you could not do a better thing than to read these two books. They will blow you away. They're not easy, short books to read, but they are so fabulous. 
I attended the first Jesus Seminar event that I attended in 2004. And at that time, I met Karen Armstrong. And I became fascinated by her, by her mind, her history, her commitment. Um, you, you can read all about her on the, on the internet. She is the first and I think only person to win a cash prize for a TED Talk. She gave a TED Talk about what you're about to learn about. And later she found out that she'd won a cash prize of $100,000. And she knew what she wanted to do with that money, which is to start this foundation um, and, and uh, start a thing called the Charter for Compassion. And I have, as I said, I'll put this on the website in a PDF format, but I've done better than that. I've got a copy for everybody here so that you can have it. And take it home and put it in your special place where you do, oh, I better keep that receipt. And have a copy. Everybody gets one. If you don't have enough, you can share them out. <clears throat> Could I have one? I have one. I have one at home. These are good copies. They're good copies. Let me read it to you while you're getting your own copy. The principle of compassion lies at the heart of all religious, ethical, and spiritual tradition calling us always to treat all others as we wish to be treated ourselves. Compassion impels us to work tirelessly to alleviate the suffering of our fellow creatures, to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and put another there, and to honor the inviolable sanctity of every single human being, treating everybody without exception with absolute justice, equity, and respect. It is also necessary in both public and private life to refrain consistently and empathetically from inflicting pain, to act or speak violently out of spite, chauvinism, or self-interest, to impoverish, exploit, or deny basic rights to anybody, and to incite hatred by denigrating others, even our enemies, is the denial of our common humanity. We acknowledge that we have failed to live compassionately and that some have even increased the sum of human misery in the name of religion. We therefore call upon all men and women to restore compassion to the center of morality and religion, to return to the ancient principle that any interpretation of scripture that breeds violence, hatred, or disdain is illegitimate to ensure that youth are given accurate and respectful information about other traditions, religions, and cultures, to encourage a positive appreciation of culture and religious diversity, to cultivate an informed empathy with the suffering of all human beings, even those regarded as enemies. We urgently need to make a comparison, to make compassion a clear, luminous, and dynamic force in our polarized world Rooted in a principal determination to transcend selfishness, compassion can break down political, dogmatic, ideological, and religious boundaries. Born of our deep interdependence, compassion is essential to human relationships and to a fulfilled humanity. 
It is the path to enlightenment and indispensable to the creation of a just economy and a peaceful global community. So I heard about Karen Armstrong, and um, I came home and I, I got the Charter of Compassion. I got this book that she wrote, The 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. You can go online to the Charter for Compassion and sign the charter that you support that. This month is uh, National Charter for Compassion Month. There is a Charter for Compassion group here in Houston. You can find that out on the website and participate in, in that too. It's an active group. Okay, so these two documents, Reclaiming Jesus and Charter for Compassion, are going to form a foundation for how we go forward in talking about what does it mean to be a person of faith and to follow Jesus? Now, the, the Charter for Compassion is a much more ecumenical document than the Reclaiming Jesus. They're both relevant. And since I'm teaching in the context of a, of a church that seeks or claims to be based on the teachings of Jesus, my emphasis is going to be on what it might look like for us as individuals or as a church really to follow Jesus. Now, as I said last week, I've done a lot of teaching over the years about Jesus and about what Jesus taught. I'm not going to go into a catalog of that teaching, and I'm sure that I will be doing more of that because that kind of teaching seems to be in my DNA. I love it, and um, it's academically interesting for me. But what's different about what I want to attempt to do now is what, is, what does it mean to teach this in the reality, living in the reality of this is it? This is the only world we have. And we don't have it individually. We have it together. Or we don't have it at all. Who is this Jesus fellow? What's he all about? That's a really easy question to answer if Jesus is an object of belief. And the movement that he started is simply about just believing in Jesus. By the way, that's something he never taught, ever. If the assertions that Einstein makes are true, and they are, what do we do in light of that with Jesus and his teachings? Now, because of those things, I spent two weeks talking about cosmological dualism and individual salvation. Because of those two things, the church has ignored the teachings of Jesus and is focused instead on private sinfulness and individual salvation so that the church has become a sin management system. Now, for me, it's been academically and intellectually interesting to know about Jesus. But that's really different than knowing Jesus. If you read one of the Jesus narratives, you will see that Jesus' teachings were about nonviolence, simplicity of lifestyle, peacemaking, love of creation, 
letting go of the ego, both for individuals and for groups. And, and in groups, I'm, I'm calling these para-church groups, like the one uh, that put together the Reclaiming Jesus movement, like the Charter for Compassion movement. They're not tied to any religious denomination. They're free from that. Richard Orr's group is free from that. Uh, although he's Roman Catholic and a lot of Roman Catholics attend his conferences, he's very ecumenically oriented, much more religiously inclusive. Um, and, and among these groups, these parachurch groups, even in the Charter for Compassion that you read, uh, you, you can see implied there that the teachings of religion are really about the specific healing and transformation of lives and living with compassion. That one educational purpose, that would help us so much. But the church is focused on beliefs and morality. And the result of this, that the church has been defined as clannish and oppositional. Now, there are plenty of churches that have created spaces for specific groups focused on faith formation and centering prayer. Ordinary life is a part of that. Um, <clears throat> I give thanks for you. I give thanks for the opportunity to do this. Uh, I'm glad you think you get something out of it. I hope you do. But I'm the real beneficiary of this. It's me that benefits. And I just show up here and offer it. But aren't you grateful that, that we can do this? And doesn't it say something to you that occasionally somebody who may be new to, to ordinary life will say something like, you couldn't teach this in any other church. What does that say about our churches? There are sea changes happening in religion, in spirituality. Indeed, I think that may be one of the reasons we see so much division, both in the church and in the political arena, uh, because some folks want to cling to an old way and not let it go. They want to preserve that. Give me that old-time religion. I have a T-shirt that says that. Give me that old-time religion. It has a picture of Stonehenge on it. <laughs> and then there are other people who are pulling in new directions. Yet when I, I look at what's in front of us, what I see is exciting. Because this sacred science view of reality, sacred science is a term I got from Michael Dowd, I think it can inspire people of diverse backgrounds and diverse beliefs to come together in service for a thriving, just future for everybody. So I would like for our times together to encourage and equip us to become, as we expand on our own identities and understandings of ourselves, to, to become uh, and, and pass on a world of health and opportunity. I think of some words that Carl Sagan wrote over 25 years ago. Sagan wrote, how is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought? The universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. God must be greater than we 
even dreamed of. A religion older knew that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth the reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by our conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. <clears throat> now, I'm suggesting looking at and reclaiming Jesus from this perspective. And I'm suggesting that that will not only energize us, but it will also energize the various worlds in which we live. And I, I'm not going to get into business about church today. Um, as, um, as we watched the, the, the first part of the film last week, and I'm going to have to check and, and write down the name. I think it was Robin Myers. Um, I had this image that came to mind. Um, he was talking about the diversity that uh, existed in the Jesus movement up until the time of Constantine. And, and uh, early on, Constantine required the leaders of various Jesus communities that existed at that time to come to Nicaea and form an agreement about what they believed. Now, church historians have known but never clearly taught to people in the church that that was a time of bickering. It was a time of political intrigue. Uh, the people who had the most power and the most money were the ones who called the shots. The people in Rome did. That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. They had that, that power. <clears throat> now, I'll call your attention to the fact that that first ecumenical council of the church was called not by the church, but by the government. Jackie Lewis, uh, she calls this the time the church got empired. <laughs> that is to say, a fourth century creation, something created in the fourth century, began to masquerade as a first century factual document. Jesus never intended to found a church. Anyway, the image that came to my mind as I watched the film last week was that of a dinosaur. And by dinosaur, I, I mean the kind of dinosaur you see down the street in the museum. I don't mean by that that the church is just old and a relic, which it is. And I was alive when these things roamed the earth. Um, <laughs> I'm not a paleontologist, but I promise you, this is not from our Natural Science Museum, this is from Chicago. But if you go to, to the museum and you see a reconstructed dinosaur, there would be a plaque down here somewhere on the wall that says which of these were actual um, fossils. And the rest is all reconstructed. The, the paleontologist may have a pretty good idea about what it looked like. They just have a few things, and that's the church. We have a few things from that, that, that we built this entire structure on, like a dinosaur. You know, if Jesus intended to create a church, he didn't do a very good job. Really, I mean... He, he left no clear instructions about its structure or purpose. He's really lousy at fundraising. 
Um, he gave away health care. And if his disciples were the first board of elders, he did a poor job of choosing wisely. In the first major decision the church made when they had to replace Jesus, they did it by uh, drawing straws. It's a good process. So uh, here is a picture of our founder that hangs in the boardroom. <laughs> and my question is that if we're going to claim Jesus as our founder, we at least ought to share his values. And the question for serious church attenders is whether this is true or not. Does the church reflect the priorities of Jesus? Now, I hope that the teachings I've offered over the past years in here reflect the best, most up-to-date, current biblical scholarship about this. Um, I've tried to lay the foundations for this as best I, as I know how. I do want to say, though, that just because Jesus said something in, in, is quoted in Christian scripture as saying something is no indication that he actually said it. So those of us who grew up in traditions where somebody said, the Bible says, or Jesus says, that's not necessarily a guarantee for anything. Occasionally, I get to do the midweek Eucharist service here at St. Paul's. And um, I usually, um, I get the ones that nobody else wants. Like my next time will be the, the Wednesday right before Thanksgiving. So everybody else is gone and I'm just going to clean up person. <laughs> and, 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 and if you know me at all, you know I've already started working on it because I, that's just the way my mind works. And that, that next Sunday, and that service is based on the lectionary readings for the next Sunday, that next Sunday is the first sun, Sunday in Advent. So we'll be moving into the Christmas season. So we're getting ready for Christmas. As I like to say, if you see the Christmas decorations up in the store, you know that Thanksgiving cannot be far behind. <laughs> But I love Christmas. I have a lot of Christmas music. The Christmas texts are like old friends that you see once a year. You know how that there's kind of judgment and hope in that and the Christmas cards you get and sin. Oh, we need to stay in touch more. We'll promise that we will, but we don't. You know, there's kind of that, that weird combination. But as entanglement would have it, just this week, I got an essay written by Jackie Lewis, who's going to be with us in this next fall, and it's on this very subject that I'm trying to talk to you about. And I just want you to know up front today that I have been profoundly influenced by what Jackie Lewis has said. I'm going to be borrowing some of what she says. I'll try to indicate what that is. Some of it you will clearly know for the, for the rest of this talk. Now, in spite, in spite of the fact that there are many things that I complain about, about Christmas, it's pushed too early, it's too commercial, some of the music is just absolutely atrocious. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus standing under, oh, and how about the one, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock, oh, God, I just hate that music. 
But I've got about, I checked, uh, check this morning, I, I've got over a thousand Christmas songs from my playlist, my Christmas playlist. And some of them are duplicates, but done by different artists. But as Jackie Lewis says, the Christmas story is the greatest story ever told. That's why we're still telling it. It's a story, and it is a story about a God who loves the world enough to come and be present in the world. And God does not come as a politician or as a soldier, but as a tiny, vulnerable baby who needs to be nursed when he's hungry, who needs to have his diapers changed, who sucks his thumb and needs his blanket in order to fall asleep. He he can't fend for himself. He needs a community to love him into adulthood. Now, again, I want to be clear. I'm using a lot of her words. We, we, we have some folks in this class uh, who are currently attending a conference where Jackie Lewis is one of the speakers. And, and one of them sent back to me an email saying that Jackie Lewis is controversial. And she said, St. Paul's will never be the same. <laughs> so I sent an email back and I said, well, I still have a job after she comes. And the response I got was, how do you feel about early retirement? <laughs> <laughs> I think you may see why when you hear what she says. These are her words. I've adopted, I've changed some of them. But this is the greatest story ever told. The same God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who blew spirit into the world, the same God who animated the Adam, the one human, the same God who sent judges and prophets to teach and raise people up, comes into history. The same God that hears the cries of God's people and rescues them from bondage, that same God enters into a time of occupation and oppression to once again rescue the ones God loves. God showed up in a particular time and place, in a particular politically tough time for God's people, in a particular town. God showed up hovering over the one called Miriam. She was with child. They traveled, she and Joseph, 80 miles from their hometown to the place where there was no room in the inn. It's a particular time and place and a particular kind of baby. It's a Jewish baby. The gospel writers help us to understand it's an African Semitic baby. That's what Matthew's genealogy was all about. It's an African Semitic baby born in a scandal. So you can imagine Mary picking up her phone and saying, hey, Joseph, it's me, Mary, I'm pregnant. No, 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 God did it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's scandalous. And somebody believed it, and a lot of people didn't. So it's an unwed mother having a Jewish, poor, Israeli, Palestinian baby boy with a stepfather named Joseph who stuck around when he didn't have to. That's how God chose to come. 
That's how God showed up. To the marginal places, the edgy places, the scandalous places, the unreputable places. That's what God chose to do. And that tells us an awful lot about God. About God's preference for the edge. God's preference for the margins. God's preference for the dispossessed, the outcasts, the ne'er-do-wells, the funky shepherds. And they were funky. Finding their way to the manger where the baby's lying in a place where the cows eat. God goes there. That's God there. This is the greatest story ever told. And sadly, this story, this amazing story of God's intervention to those occupied, those on the edges, God coming to heal the whole world, this story has been hijacked by the empire and co-opted for greed. What do I mean by hijacked by empire? As soon as Constantine sees the cross in the sky and makes Christianity the state religion, it's empired. That's her words. The church mirrors the world rather than critiques it or calls it to a higher consciousness. The church blesses oppression and derision as a way to convert people to a religion that is so far removed from faith in the God who is simply called love. So let's watch the Crusades march across Europe and torture Muslims to be Christians. Let's exterminate Jews because they're not Christian. That's what I mean by hijacked by empire. Neither that brown Jewish baby in the crib nor the man he grew up to be demanded allegiance to power and greed. He didn't ask for Christian armies to destroy the world in the name of God. I'm talking about hijacked by empire. And what I mean by co-opted by greed, who is that little white shiny baby on the Christmas cards with sparkling snow cascading on his blonde haloed head? I don't mean any harm, white people, but really. <laughs> Have you been to Israel? There might be one blonde baby in the whole state. What happened? How did this story get commodified? And when I read that, I, I, I thought of this wonderful statue that I have. It does not get any worse of a train wreck than this. And to make it worse, this is a music box. <laughs> you wind it up and it plays. It goes all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that would be great if it did. How did you, this is Jackie Lewis saying, how did Europeans get to be the center of it? How did shopping get to be the main event? In many so-called Christian spaces, God came to the margins, my friend. God came to the powerless, to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the ones overtaxed and overburdened. That's where God to show, chose to show up. We only have Christmas to celebrate because Mary and Joseph took their little Jewish baby to Egypt and were welcomed there. That's a poor, brown, homeless, refugee baby. How in the name of Jesus 
Can we cage migrating children, profit off the suffering of migrating people, and build jail cells to enlarge the coffers of the prison industrial complex? How in the name of the brown one, the poor one, or brown and black people dying from state-sanctioned violence, how dare we not welcome the stranger when it is the stranger who taught us how to love? We need to get back to the story. If we go back to the story, if we skip the Christmas cards, if we skip the tinsel and go back to the story, we'll find there the meaning of life. Love comes all the way down and puts on baby flesh. That's love in the manger, wrapped in little Afro-Semitic baby flesh, swaddled in the bands of cloth. That's love in the manger, needing a mommy and a daddy in a village to hold it. That's love in a manger, needing to raise love to make love everywhere. There's so much rancor and hatred in the name of religion, in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. What if this story is not about running up our credit cards to buy things people don't want or need, and is actually about a bold new religion simply called love? What if love were the state religion? And when the baby grew up, and was asked, what does it mean to be faithful? How do we do this? That rabbi, that African-Semitic rabbi said, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor and yourself. In other words, love, period. I think Jesus is saying, that everything else is commentary. Everything else. What a piece. That's how we enlarge the circle of compassion. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. I'll see you here next week, or hopefully you will stay for the film that will follow in about 15 minutes. Thank you. Thank you.